Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. And I'm Robert Bucciolato. And today we're going to talk about the most famous name in aviation, Pan American World Airways, and its Florida birth, its formation in Florida, and ultimately President Franklin Roosevelt taking a Pan Am Clipper in the first presidential flight ever when he attended the Casablanca Conference during World War II to meet Winston Churchill and other uh, British and American leaders. So, Robert, um, 1927, aviation is, is a young industry. People are vying for, for mail contracts uh, for, to, to, to deliver the U.S. mail to various locations. This is how American Airlines started. This is how Transworld, uh, TWA started. This is how Eastern started. This is how uh, United started. Pan Am started the same way, getting a contract to fly mail from Key West to Havana, and in fact, uh, Juan Tripp, who was from New York, they, they got the contract uh, and needed to start service immediately. He had to buy an airplane, have it fly to Miami, and then ferry it from Miami to Key West. As it turned out, they couldn't build a, an adequate enough landing strip in Key West to, to handle the airplane. So what ended up happening is they started using seaplanes and were able to eventually build the first international airport in the United States in Miami. Uh, yeah, there's Pan Am is, is often linked with New York and with the China Clipper flights from, from San Francisco that you see famously going under the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and you see the famous pictures from the Marine Air Terminal in New York, uh, which is now LaGuardia Airport. Eventually Pan Am would ship to Idlewild, which is now known as JFK. And, and those, uh, using uh, Long Island Sound and the East River for their flying boats. But the first international flights went from Dinner Key in Miami, uh, which is which is in the Coconut Grove neighborhood of Miami. From 1932 to 1945, this airport operated, uh, designed largely by Charles Lindbergh, the famous Charles Lindbergh. There were inadequate landing strips in Latin America for Pan Am to service. By this time, Pan Am is servicing pa- passengers as well as the mail uh, in the early 1930s. So... You have to use the flying boats, and that gets you around the poor landing strips in, in the Caribbean and Latin America. That that uh, initial international Pan American airport, as it was called, was built uh, on Dinner Key in Coconut Grove. You know, this is um, as far as I as I can recall, this is another uh, great instance of you have something flying aviation that it's in its infancy. It's in its um, its prototype phase, similar to the space race of the 1950s and 60s, and so much of it is taking place once again in Florida. Yep. Time and time and time again, Florida is a showcase for all of these various innovative ways of transportation and tourism. I think a lot of people forget how much of a part Pan Am played in Florida and and vice versa, just because Pan Am has now disappeared. But um, it was not a very common practice for people to fly in this time period. You know, they they had still been flying almost 20, 30 years at this point, but I think only about 1% of the population ever got into an airplane. And most of it was getting done in major metropolises, including 
South Florida. And there was this great novelty, this idea of air mail that could cut down time uh, that it took for a business owner to receive correspondence from another business owner or customer. And uh, Lindbergh actually got his start in aviation as a, um, a mail carrier. And when he got successful and he started thinking what he was going to do for the rest of his life and he started working with Pan Am, he used that expertise here in Florida and devised, uh, like you were saying, these systems that made it incredibly more efficient. And so what we saw here, now it's a pretty um, standard way of life that you can send a letter in the mail and then it can be transported by air to another location. But a lot of the tools needed to make that cost effective were devised by Lindbergh and Pan Am here in Florida. Yeah, and in fact, the first scheduled airline flight, I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, was a uh, airboat line between St. Petersburg and Tampa. And as aviation grew into a bigger industry, uh, Southeast Florida w- w- was a focal point. You know, we're talking about Pan Am in this show. In a future show, we're going to talk about Eastern Airlines and Colonel Eddie Rickenbacker. Eastern Airlines was an inextricably linked with with uh, Miami and the entire state of Florida. In fact, I think you, know, you can credibly argue Florida's economy grew the way it did, largely because of Eastern Airlines. But that's, that's for another show. Let's talk a little bit more, once again, about Pan Am at uh, Dinner Key at the International Pan American Airport. So the first international airport in the country where you have uh, this cosmopolitan mix of, of kind of wealthy travelers, the 1%, as you mentioned, foreign dignitaries, um, foreign business people, they're all converging in Coconut Grove or in Miami. Uh, which helped develop Miami, which was a newer city, but also a city in the South. Uh, we, we, we can never forget when we talk about history that Florida is a Southern state, but it made Miami a much more cosmopolitan place, uh, akin a little bit to New Orleans uh, among Southern cities, largely because of this airport. Well, you know, also, too, at this time period for for the, I'd say the first rush of tourism that happened in this state from the 1890s to the, the 1920s, all the way up until, you know, Flagler came along. The, the big bulk of tourism, the big bulk of rich, um, you know, people that, that really were high-heeled were coming here to spend money and have a good time, was sort of concentrated between Pensacola and St. Augustine. With the advent of air travel, there was a a huge increase of wealthy people that started coming into South Florida, and with them, their business, and you saw this real diversification of skills and of commerce that kind of came with them to cater to them, and that was where you started getting sort of the Latin feel begin to, to sort of take hold in, in South Florida. That's where, um, you know, stuff like um, presidents and, and dignitaries, like you mentioned, started to kind of fluctuate here. And it became, for for a pretty good time, a aviation hotspot and an aviation capital. There was uh, a lot of roads in the air, and most of them seemed to lead to South Florida. 
Yeah. So Miami becomes the first bona fide airline hub uh, in the United States, maybe in the world. Uh, one of the first, and Pan Am was the most famous name in aviation uh, globally. Uh, it's still such a famous name because if you watch any any James Bond movie, you watch any old movie, so much of it is about Pan Am. Um, Want to conclude this episode talking about Franklin Roosevelt? He takes the first ever presidential flight uh, from Dinner Key from Miami to go to the Casablanca Conference. Uh, in 1943, early 1943, right after Operation Torch has liberated uh, large portions of North Africa, that that invasion, which is often forgotten about for some reason now in history. Uh, we talk a lot about the D-Day invasions, but the first major amphibious landing the Allies had to plan, the Western Allies, uh, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, under the leadership of General Eisenhower, was Operation Torch, landing in North Africa and, and trying to liberate those areas from um, the German puppet state that was Vichy France. Hey, one of the interesting things, and you know, you're you're very excited to talk about about FDR's first, you know, presidential flight internationally. One of the things that is, is so fascinating that people need to remember is there wasn't an Air Force One. Right. His transportation was furnished by Pan Am, and that's you know that's always a very um, important distinction to to understand was the fact that it was. It was such a new concept that presidential uh, transportation was still in its infancy. It predated the whole concept of secure transport from one country to another uh, for our chief, you know, our, our commander in chief. If you want to understand uh, the, the monopoly Pan Am had on, uh, on uh, power in Washington, the grip they had on international air travel from the United States. Uh, watch uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, Aviator, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Howard Hughes, uh, who is trying to challenge Pan Am with his upstart TWA. Obviously, Pan Am was the incumbent. Actually, Alec Baldwin plays Juan Tripp in that movie. Yeah, he does, yeah. So I, I would suggest watching that just for a quick refresher about how entrenched Pan Am was. Pan Am was the ambassador of the United States throughout the world. That was even the case when I was a little, little kid. I mean, Pan Am was the epitome of the United States. It was the United States in so many different lands, and it was born and and, and raised here in Florida and continued until its dying day. The final Pan Am flight uh, landed at Miami International Airport when they went out of business. It was Pan Am's home as much as New York was, even though I think historically people outside of Florida associate the airline more with New York than they do with Miami. So FDR takes the first flight. There is no Air Force One then. He takes the Dixie Clipper on the morning of January 11th, 1943. The crew had not even been told that President Roosevelt was coming. This is how secret this was. Because obviously, in those days, it could fall into the hands of, uh, of German intelligence or Japanese intelligence, uh, Italian intelligence forces, etc., and he takes this Pan Am uh, flight, which took him, I think, a day and a half to go from Miami to, uh, I think it stopped in Trinidad. And then they went somewhere on the uh, west coast of Africa and then up to, to Casablanca. But it's, it's something that is real significant because that was the first ever presidential air flight. And it was also leaving from the city where there had been a major assassination attempt on FDR 
before he took office, if, if, uh, which I'm sure our listeners are aware of, at Bayfront Park, uh, where the mayor of Chicago was killed. But all of these ties to Miami seem to, seem to keep reappearing in FDR's presidency. You know, a, a, a refresher that um, we've always played some sort of recreational role in our presidents, whether it's Truman's Little White House, whether it's uh, the golfing excursions of Warden G. Harding, <laughs> or whether it's the Pan Am trip of FDR. We just, you know, we're the place to go, or, the sunny shore. Or even presidential losers. Because yes. at the time, William, or prior, you mentioned Harding, uh, the 1920s, yeah. William Jennings Bryan had relocated yeah. to, to the new uh, Merrick-built town of Coral Gables and had become the spokesperson for Coral Gables. Yes. So uh, we were attracting all the elements. Uh, wanted to mention before we depart this episode, air travel was not considered safe, a safe form <laughs> of travel for a president prior to this flight. So the feeling was, if the president was going to go abroad, he was going to go abroad by ship. If there were dignitaries that, if the president needed to uh, needed to meet with a foreign leader, often you would send dignitaries. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, they would very often leave on Pan Am from Miami. But the president himself would not would not take a flight because of the safety risk. This was the first time. This flight, leaving Miami to go to uh, North Africa, was the first time a president, a sitting president, had ever boarded an aircraft and taken off. And, uh, it seems so second nature now, right, Robert? So oh, you're yeah. a presidential historian. So uh, so commonplace for the president to always be on Air Force One, always be jet-setting around. But it was very different in that era. Well, and, and it's amazing because we talked a little bit about this for the preparation of this show. You look at the two flights made by presidents from, I, I think it was like 1908 when TR was the first president. Or no, I'm sorry, 1910, TR was the first president. He was a former president. And he went up in the air with one of the Wright brothers for about two or three minutes to FDR doing this flight. And he flew once as a governor. But in that 30-year period, if they were going to travel, like, Wilson, if he was going to go to Versailles, he was going to go there on a, a Navy cruiser. After this flight, the explosion of progress for travel, it, it just, it comes at you like a rush. I mean, within a few years, Harry Truman has the first Air Force One. I mean, it was just, it was just, uh, you know, this was it. This was the lightning bolt. This was the action that needed to happen. This one flight. And then from then on, um, all presidents flew wherever they went. One thing I, I, I have to put a cherry on this episode saying, while presidents were cautious, the government was, uh, and everybody around uh, the federal government was cautious about having a president go in the air. Eleanor Roosevelt herself was a very <laughs> avid flyer by that time. She even went up with the Tuskegee Airmen, right, during the war? Yeah. So, they, uh, during training? They, they were going to give FDR his own plane, and they didn't think it was safe enough, so they gave it to Eleanor. Right. <laughs> uh, but but uh, this, this event really kind of changed the trajectory of the presidency and how we think about the presidency. So, well, thanks again, Robert. We'll be back next week of with another, another new episode of the Florida History Podcast. Check us out wherever you subscribe uh, and find your podcasts.